0: Welcome to a special episode of Policy Outsider, presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government. I'm Alex Morris. June is National Gun Violence Awareness Month, and on June 3rd, 2022, Jacqueline Schilkraut, the Interim Executive Director of the Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium, a team of firearm and gun violence researchers, which is housed at the Rockefeller Institute, had a Twitter Spaces conversation with Mike Innestis, Executive Director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center. Their conversation focused on how changing the way we understand and talk about mass shootings can improve policy discussions and move the needle on enacting evidence-based policies to reduce gun violence. For this episode, we will be listening to their conversation coming up next.
1: Mike Anestis, Executive Director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center and uh, Associate Professor in the School of Public Health at Rutgers. Uh, I'm excited to uh, co-host today's uh, Twitter space talking about how we should change the way we talk about uh, maintenance.
2: I'm uh, Jackie Schildkraut. I'm the Interim Executive Director of the Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium and an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at SUNY Oswego. And I'm very excited to be joining uh, Mike and the New Jersey Gun
1: Violence Research Center for this conversation. Yeah, we'll go ahead and get started. And I will say as a a preface to this, I I sort of see myself primarily as a firearm suicide researcher. That's how we come into the gun violence space and have been evolving that over the last couple of years. So I'm I'm excited to have Jackie here for this conversation because she truly is a a content expert. Um, So I'm excited to hear her thoughts on the topic that I think has been filling our headspace for a lot of us over the last couple of weeks. Um, And so let's just sort of jump into it. And and Jackie, obviously, it's been a difficult couple of weeks. Uh, And before we get going with with things, is there anything you'd like to reflect on about sort of what has happened and what we might expect next in terms of efforts to sort of stem the tide of mass shootings?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, we're in a really critical junction um, in our nation. Interestingly, Congress is actually out this week, um, and they're going to be coming back on Monday. And I think that we're going to really see um, a lot of push for legislative action, which typically follows mass shootings. But I think we're all going to be watching to see whether you know we actually can turn the tides if we can you know actually garner the bipartisan support and you know put some policies into place, or if it's going to be what we've seen before, where there's sort of this flurry of legislative introduction and, and not a whole lot of movement.
1: Yeah, I know that's certainly been the question that's been coming up for me a lot in any of the sort of media interactions I've done on this. Are sort of a combo of what policies might work and, and what do you think might actually happen? And I think those are two very different questions. And I'm curious, do you think, Jackie, there's anything that might actually get across the finish line on a federal level that actually may be impactful with respect to this particular type of gun violence?
2: yeah i think the one thing that i've been seeing kind of in the conversation um and of course you know there's a difference between saying you support something and actually supporting it but the one thing that i've really seen kind of flurry is um, extreme risk protection orders and um you know those are something that we have at you know in a a few states i think the last number was 11 i believe when we looked um i may be wrong on that number 19 19 dc DC, sorry i knew i was mixing up my numbers, but. I think ERPOs are probably going to be, you know, one of the things that are really looked at because one of the things that we know about mass shooters is they don't just wake up one morning and snap and go do this, that there's a lot of planning. And so by understanding kind of those opportunities for intervention, you can potentially step in, whether it's through an extreme risk protection order um, or something else, and hopefully sort of, you know, buy, I don't want to say buy some time, but create a window where we can focus on de-escalation and prevention ultimately of the threat.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the beauty of extremes protection orders to me is sort of a, a couple things. One is that they also can be impactful across multiple forms of gun violence. Right. So um, the, the data on ERPOs with respect to suicide prevention is, is, is new but promising. Right. But also the second thing I, I love them is we've seen movement on ERPOs in states that are not just blue governor mansion and blue legislatures. Right. So there's there's yeah. a, a precedent for bi- bipartisan collaboration on that.
2: Yeah. And I love the point that you raised that, you know, when we think about gun violence and when we even talk about gun violence in our country, we often focus on those most extreme examples like mass shootings. And certainly they're horrible, but the loss of any one life to gun violence is absolutely one too many. So to your point, ERPOs are great, are really important because they're not going to just deal with preventing mass shootings, but also potentially help intervene for other types of firearm violence that are far more common.
1: Yeah. And sort of building off that, the other thing I've heard bandied about a lot, and and I don't know what your thoughts are on the odds of this having any sort of bipartisan traction, but one that is a little bit more unique to these large-scale public mass shootings is is the idea of limiting access to to high-capacity magazines. And I'm curious, because I'm a little less familiar with the data on this point, how promising you think would be in terms of actually um, impacting the outcome of, of these types of events?
2: Yeah. So one of the reasons why I think there's a push for limiting large capacity magazines is because in the event that one of these tragedies happens, it effectively buys people time. Um, And, you know, if a person is having to reload their firearm faster, that creates more seconds on the clock for people who are in the space to potentially um, escape. You know, one, person that I think um there was a little boy in Sandy Hook. his name's Riken Posey, and um, I can't remember if the shooter's gun jammed or if he was switching magazines, but in that moment, Riken just yelled "Run and he and his a couple of his classmates escaped because they you know had those seconds. and so I think that's really kind of where the impetus for that comes from in this space.
1: yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it's one of those ones where I think a lot of, when I talk to journalists from outside the U.S., they come at it from a perspective of, well, you saw this by not having the firearms, and, and that's not the way it works in the in the United States, right? The firearms are are there, and so it comes about mitigating the risk associated with this, and, and that seems like it is entirely consistent with that, which is, like if we come to a point of acceptance that this particular type of firearm exists, can we at least limit the amount of negative impact they can have in a situation like this? Yeah, absolutely on not. Yeah. Um, so, it, and I, you know, I I mentioned you some other questions and asked that aren't policy specific, but I, I'm curious just because, you know, as we're talking about these specific policies, a lot of the times we're talking about are ones that, um, I think are proposed that focus specifically on the firearms, but a lot of the things that politicians are talking about are, um, focus less on limiting access to the firearm or, or, you know, things like high capacity magazines that are a part of the firearm and more about the environment. And I wonder if we might want to take a couple of minutes to talk about things, whether that is things like the presence of armed guards or whether that is investing heavily in sort of the structural integrity of the school buildings themselves. Um, And I certainly have a couple of thoughts, but I, I, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts first about those two to make sure we're talking about sort of the broad range of policies that people are talking about in these larger conversations
2: and i think that that's a great point you know there's sort of two separate but equal conversations that are you know running parallel to one another right now and that is you know first how do we prevent these tragedies from happening in the first place but then second understanding that uh, you know as much as we might try we're never going to reduce that risk to zero so if they do happen how do we mitigate the loss of life in those moments and you know certainly we've heard um policies from um, you know, our, our legislators, um, like I, I know that some of the folks in Texas have come out, you know, obviously with armed guards um, or armed teacher policies. Um, there's also been talk about you know, reconfiguring buildings to only have a single access or single point access. And, you know, kind of in both with regards to both of those, I think that there's some challenges. Um, number one, Texas already had um, currently has on the books two separate policies related to armed teachers. They have the school marshal program and the the school guardian program. And I'm going to mix them up because I usually do. Um, One of them requires 16 hours of training to be able to carry your weapons solely for the purpose of responding to an active shooter. Um, And then the other is 80 hours of training to be able to be more civilian Law enforcement in the schools. So those policies were already on the books. And then if we talk about something like changing, like building design to only have a single access point, we have other challenges that have to be discussed in that space, you know, related to fire code. um, And, you know, things, I guess, challenges for schools that would be more common than active shooters.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, that last point really has stuck out to me in conversations about you know single-point entry in terms of that's addressing one problem and potentially ignoring others that would be impacted by it, right? We, we make a change to one thing. We don't only address the one outcome. We impact a whole, whole host of other things, and, and the fire code is is what really jumped out to me uh, on that. And, and in reflecting on the armed guards, one thing that, that caught my attention the other day is someone sent it to me, and I, I hadn't been aware of this, was a, a study – and maybe you're already aware of this, from uh, it's in Jana, JAMA Network Open from 2021 by uh, Jillian Peterson and colleagues that looked at mass school shootings in the U.S. from 1980 to 2019 and found that the presence of armed guards um, was actually not only not associated with a lower number of deaths when school shootings happened, but is was actually associated with 2.83 greater um, amount of deaths uh, relative to the schools without. And um, one of their thoughts was that you know, oftentimes... Uh, mass school shooters are potentially also suicidal at the time, that the presence of an armed guard might, in some ways, be uh, somebody who pulls them in as it's a chance for uh, suicide by cop, essentially, a, a chance for a, a no- known way to accomplish one of the desired outcomes in this. Um, and so I was sort of surprised by the data on that, because intuitively, it's appealing, the idea of you want somebody armed and trained to address the threat, the life threat of someone with a firearm in the building, and yet the data is telling a story that's a little bit different.
2: Yeah, I think we have to be really, really cautious about how we interpret that, um, you know, because obviously, certainly, we want to look at all angles, but we have to show that we're doing it in a really responsible way. And a challenge that with that study is the fact that there's so many factors not controlled for in that um, analysis. For instance, you know, we have to think about it's not just the presence of an armed SRO on campus, but where they are on the campus. Um, how much time does it take for them to respond? Do they engage the shooter? What is their firepower differential um, you know, things to consider that are all happening in a split second that mm-hmm. usually cross sectional studies really can't capture, you know. And so, to kind of use two real world examples um, with SROs, uh, you know, I grew up in the Parkland, Florida community, and anybody that knows anything about our tragedy probably won't be surprised about my thoughts on that SRO um, because our SRO stood outside for 35 minutes. So, not only did um, You know, did he not only not stop the shooting, but the shooting was over in six minutes? So, what was he doing for the other 29 minutes while students and teachers were potentially bleeding out? You know, that's one instance of where it can go wrong. But if you also look at something like Columbine, for instance, um, and of course, police protocols were very different in 1999 than they are today. Um, But if you look at Columbine, their SRO, Neil Gardner, um, actually engaged with the shooters. And, you know, he was outside, they were inside, but he was still able to engage with them even with having a very different, um, you know, firepower differential. And that amount of time that he was engaged with the two shooters undoubtedly allowed for so many people in that building to get locked down and and effectively go home that day because the only people that were physically injured or lost their lives during that shooting were the individuals in the library and a couple of people outside. And that's not to diminish, again, the loss of life. But one of the things that doesn't get talked about, and actually when it does get talked about, it sort of is like, you know, Mi- uh, minimized in terms of effectiveness is the lockdown, and we know that the number one life-saving device in a in a school shooting or an active shooter situation is a door lock.
1: Yeah, and I think all that highlights how difficult this is to study because also with that same Peterson study I mentioned, they can't assess how many shootings didn't happen in the first place potentially because exactly. of the present right, and so it's it's very difficult to interpret those data, and it highlights. How complicated this is, because as we said earlier, mass shootings are, they're too common, but they're also a really small percentage of gun violence, right? So actually having comprehensive data that lets us point towards what does and doesn't work is hard in general, especially for we're getting down to the nuances of the specific situation that would help us evaluate the effectiveness of some of these things like having an armed guard uh, present.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, we don't hear in our country enough about all of the shootings that don't happen, right? We, he- we don't even hear about all of the shootings that do happen, um, let alone the ones that don't happen. And so, you know, what really inspires me um, is the fact that we do have researchers? Eric Madfis at the University of Washington Tacoma is a great example of this, uh, and also one of our consortium members, Jason Silva from William Patterson in New Jersey. Um, we've got researchers who are looking at why shootings don't come to fruition, whether that's because they're averted in the first place, oftentimes because individuals with information come forward, or what about those that are failed, um, meaning that you know we have individuals who show up and you know attempt to commit one of these tragedies and don't. And so I think. We, you know, we don't know enough about those. We don't know how many there are. But really, we don't know about the beyond the leakage element. What are the consistent, you know, things that are happening to prevent or break up these before they happen? And how can we use that to inform policy?
1: Yeah. And Jackie, I've heard you recently in a couple times use that term leakage. And, and I wonder if some listeners might benefit from you giving a little bit more of an example of what that sort of often might look like and how we can leverage that to sort of stop things from happening in the first place.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So leakage is kind of the idea of sort of broadcasting your intentions in advance. Um, The way I kind of explain it in sort of a crude way is like, I remember when I was a child, and I would get like, super, super excited about something. And then I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I still do this as an adult, you can't keep it to yourself, you like feel this overwhelming need to tell somebody. And mass shooters are no different. They're incredibly consumed with their thoughts and their plans about what they're going to do it, it becomes their whole life. And in in essence, they kind of get sloppy and start posting or telling people what they're going to do. And so, you know, in some cases, it's very directed threats. Um, The perpetrator in our community was Running around telling everybody he was going to shoot up the school. He was posting it all over social media. I mean, if you would listen, he would tell you. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things about leakage is, especially among school shooters, um, almost 100% of the time they leak. Um, I think the information from the Secret Service report was like 94%. And then, you know, you not only see that these individuals are sharing information, but they are subsequently like at least one person hears about it, but oftentimes it's multiple people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, again, I, I keep drawing back to parallels to things I think a lot about as a clinical psychologist and suicide prevention is you, you have people will talk about a thoughts and people will dismiss that as as other things. So we say, always take that seriously, even though those okay. that expression of thought is a pretty poor predictor of behavior. And so I, I like the idea of, look, when you see warning signs, something about that. I have a follow-up question for you, though, is that, is there any concern that a lot of folks who say this don't go on to do these things. Is there any, is there any way for folks to be able to, to sift through what is leakage of an actual intent versus what is, you know, probably unhealthy but but not actually dangerous, sort of fantasizing by someone who's maybe not doing so well but isn't likely to do this behavior.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, one thing that I've really you know kind of focused on, especially over the last ten days, in conversations about Uvalde and others or other shootings is the general public myself included we're not trained on threat assessment and we don't have the resources to determine the credibility of the threat and so when i talk about credibility i mean not only like how likely is it that this person is going to you know sort of fulfill what they're saying but also do they have the means to be able to do so and so one thing that i think is really important is we need to not only educate people on what leakage looks like but we need to talk to them about how to report it to the appropriate channels because you know, a lot of communities, um, especially since Parkland, have community-based threat assessment teams where individuals in the mental health um, sector, law enforcement, the courts, schools, and other vested stakeholders can kind of come together to the table, share their respective information, which is key, um, and I'll kind of come back to that in a second, and assess the credibility of the threat. And if that threat proves to be credible, then they can put a plan into place to manage it um, you know, in a way that is most appropriate. Um, you know, One of the challenges that we see with these events is that a lot of people have information, but it's kind of like breadcrumbs. And so there's a lot of existence in these sort of information silos. And so really kind of breaking those walls down and creating spaces where that information can be shared and the puzzle pieces can be put together is so important.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I've also heard you mention specifically community sort of anonymous tip lines, um, which I would imagine would sort of fit into that general infrastructure that you were just talking about.
2: Yeah, we have. um, So there's a lot of different programs. One of the ones that's probably the most well known is out in Colorado. It's called Safe to Tell. Um, And Safe to Tell has been used, uh, it it kind of started as like a nonprofit company after Columbine, and then it eventually grew to become sort of the the resource in the state of Colorado. And with tip lines like that, it's really great because you have a, a sort of centralized space where people can report information in that That subsequently becomes a Mechanism to ensure that these tips are being followed up on. And then you can also sort of forward that information to the relevant parties. Um, And again, it provides an anonymous space. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people don't come forward. Um, Part of it may be fear of judgment, you know, like how will somebody feel if I tell on them? Will they think like I'm, you know, sort of narking on them? And, you know, by creating that anonymous space, it's, you know, really, really beneficial to give them an outlet where they feel safe to report, but they're also getting the information in the Hands of the people who need it, Um, and again, these tip lines were not, you know, they might have been put in response to a school shooting, but they were never designed to solely um, address or kind of identify school shooting plots. These are, you know, resources that can be used for students who may be considering self harm, who are being abused, who are being bullied. Um, There's all sorts of different ways that students in crisis can benefit from these um, resources, and then again, kind of expanding it up to the community level beyond just the school, which then would allow for these um, platforms to be used for you know other threats within the community, not just those in the school.
1: Yeah. So in thinking about these, you mentioned those tip lines can be helpful for so many reasons for people starting for all sorts of reasons. And it leads me to one of the parts of the narrative nationally on mass shootings that as a clinical psychologist gets me frustrated pretty often which is sort of the way we speak about mental illness and its its place in all of this and and here again I'm curious your thoughts on uh, you know so, sort of the data but also just the the topic in general in terms of the the role of mental illness in these mass school shootings or mass shootings in general
2: yeah you know i think <sighs> there's so many issues with this, you know, and I don't need to to tell you this, Mike, but we know that, you know, uh, individuals with mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of crime than the perpetrators of crime. But pretty much since Columbine, um, we've seen what uh, my colleague Glenn Musher and I sort of termed the usual suspects of the three things that constantly get blamed for mass shootings, and that is guns, mental health and violent media. And, you know, what ends up happening is you run into the issue of over And, you know, this was kind of, uh, I, I use this as an example in a paper I wrote once where, uh, you know, I said, well, 40,000 people got call of duty that the first weekend it came out, 40,000 people didn't go commit mass shootings. And mental health is very similar. You know, we, we see that there's this push to point a finger at something. And obviously, we know that there's so many people in our country right now, especially after COVID, who are struggling with mental health and mental wellness. Um, but to continue to criminalize and re-stigmatize at a time when our country really has made strides with mental health um, in terms of making it more acceptable to talk about it publicly, I think is so concerning.
1: Yeah, to me, it feels like targeting a marginalized population that gets othered very often. And so folks uh, will say, well, it, it, mass shootings are are It's not about me or people I know. It's this thing that these other folks do. And in doing so, they take this already struggling group and make life more difficult. Um, And I think it also has the effect of conflating a lot of things together, right? Mental illness means so many different things uh, that so many folks struggle with in different ways, and some of which are more or less relevant to aggressive behavior. Uh, By putting everything together into one thing in mental illness, it, it just makes it, I think, so much harder for folks already struggling to then feel comfortable in their own shoes and comfortable speaking about their struggles, and I, and I, I find the conversation particularly frustrating when it's within the context of folks then not pivoting towards well, what will we do to get people access to evidence based mental health care? Um, so again, it feels more about blaming than it is about solving those situations.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I, you know, I think a lot about Sandy Hook in this respect, and um, you know. I think I do want to kind of throw this caveat out there that it's incredibly difficult to really study or assess the prevalence of um, psychiatric disorders or mental health issues among mass shooters. Uh, Because if you listen to the media, which is where a lot of us build our Our databases out of, the media will tell you that everybody's mentally ill. Um, And the challenge for formal diagnoses is certainly that everyone's records are protected under HIPAA. So the only time we really find out that there have been a psychiatric disorder is if there's a trial, such as with um, Aurora, and that kind of information is presented as evidence, which then assumes that the perpetrator is still alive to go to trial. And so there's all of these other, um, you know, different challenges and nuances. So I don't think we really understand or can understand, you know, the prevalence of mass, uh, sorry, of mental health issues among mass shooters. But I, as I said, I do think a lot about Sandy Hook in this respect because it came out not too long after the shooting happened, that the perpetrators um, had been diagnosed from a very young age with Asperger's. And everybody started, you know, kind of pointing the fingers at Asperger's and saying, you know, this is this is not okay, and these individuals are dangerous. And then I read an article, um, and it sort of laid it out that individuals who have been diagnosed with Asperger's, um, you know, are rarely violent. If they happen to have a violent episode, it's never outside of their family. And in just about zero instances, do they ever pick up a weapon. And so I thought that that was really interesting to kind I see the the di- you know, the sort of more clinical statistics about Asperger's at a time where if you read anything or talked to anybody, they would have told you these are the most violent individuals in the world.
0: I want to make a quick note that in late 2012, the American Psychiatric Association announced that Asperger's would no longer be a standalone diagnosis, but would instead be considered part of a broader category of autism spectrum disorders. The shooter at Sandy Hook Elementary School was diagnosed with Asperger's before this change, and the reporting at that time referred that original diagnosis. Now back to the conversation.
1: And, and I think that parallels the way people talk about things like schizophrenia, too, where, where if someone diagnosed with a psychotic disorder or schizophrenia, for instance, uh, does engage in violence, it's most often going to happen during the first episode of psychosis, and people will spin that to think of psychosis as someone who is is angry and mean and murderous, as opposed to if you've interacted with someone, that, what, what they are are confused and scared and unable to trust their own senses. Right? You're literally getting sensory input that's that's inaccurate, and so I, I think it becomes easy again for folks to take something they don't understand, whether that be an autism spectrum disorder or a psychotic disorder, and misconstrue it as something um, evil, as opposed to something that is extraordinarily scary and overwhelming for the individual experiencing it, and also as something that really isn't connected to being violent or hateful at all. Um, Hey, I don't want to pivot too hard, but um, <laughs> one of the things as we're doing is we're spending a lot of time talking about the perpetrators and and a point effort you make, a very salient one for me that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about as I'm having these conversations to make sure I don't fall into this trap, is that maybe that's something we do a little bit too much. And, and that maybe one of the things we need to be doing is instead of giving a, a large amount of, of fame or infamy to the perpetrator, we need to lift up the stories of the victims. And I'm wondering if you might want to speak to that.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting timing. Um, When I woke up this morning, I actually um, had an email from somebody who lost a relative, a a very close relative in a mass shooting. And, you know, she was sort of thanking me, I guess she had seen something I said in one of the interviews I've done over the last 10 days, Um, you know, just that she really appreciated that I was, you know, having that conversation when so many people wouldn't. And, you know, I think, I, I, there's so many layers to this. Um, and to kind of give listeners a little bit of context for my background. Um, I started working with survivors back in 2014. Um, I sort of took a chance. I knew I really wanted to help and and support these individuals. Um, and I happened to see Michelle Gay, whose daughter Josephine was killed at Sandy Hook. I saw her on, um, a CNN special with Anderson Cooper, um, about the one year, um, mark of the shooting. And she was just so eloquent and just so inspiring and insightful. And I was like, I just want to talk to her. And um, I actually like reached out and, you know, just kind of explained who I was and what I did. And and we were able to connect. Um, And I mean, I'll never forget that first conversation and just sort of my nervousness of going in it, you know, not wanting to say the wrong thing. And um, you know, Michelle's become a person that's incredibly close to me. And in an ironic twist of fate, Joey and I actually have the same birthday. So we'll constantly say that we were meant to always meet each other and work together. Um, but since you know, Michelle kind of opened the door for me, I've I've had the opportunity to meet so many incredible survivors um and support them in different ways. And I think one challenge for our nation is that we're so used to hearing these individuals talked about talked about as a number. Um you know, certainly with Uvaldi, we've heard about 19 children, not Amory and all of these other individuals who had personalities and had lives and you know stories. And that was something I personally really struggled with after Parkland because people just just kept saying 17, 17, and I'm like, no, 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 they're you know they're Nick and they're Jamie and they're Chris and and they have these families and these lives and these stories. And so one thing that I've really tried to promote is learning about these individuals because you know, they didn't have a choice in all of this. Um, You know, their choice was made for them. And I think honoring their legacies is one of the most important and powerful things that we can do. But it's also a way in which we take some of the power away from the perpetrators.
1: Yeah, and offer just an immense amount of support for folks who are suffering immeasurable, unspeakable loss in a really public way.
2: Yeah, they, you know, survivors that I talked to, um, you know, and I've done some research, Uh, I was so fortunate that um, 40 survivors came on the record with me, um, not with their identities, but they opened up and allowed me to interview them for the purpose of research. Um, Because one of the things that um, was really important was that, um, you know, that they really wanted to kind of have their stories told and have their voices heard. And I just don't think we do that enough.
1: I agree, too. And and I think it's interesting a lot of people are not politicizing uh, these events when they happen, which, you know, it's you can, I guess, understand on some level. But I, I hear that in the context of folks then who say that not lifting up these stories. I and mean, I think if we truly want to honor folks. Um, the way to do that is is to make sure people know about them and understand who they were, because um, I, I agree. I I think for me, sometimes I avoid knowing as much about the victims because it's hard to hear about, right? And it, it, we need to do hard things. We need to confront difficult things and hear that. But I know as a parent, it, it's so difficult to even read the story of, for instance, these children um, in Uvalde. Um, but maybe that's a difficult thing we all need to do in order to better connect with the, the magnitude of the problem and the urgency, person.
2: Yeah, you know, I hate to use this word because I know the word is so stigmatized, but I talk about it sometimes as privilege. Um, you know, it's it's a privilege to be able to change the channel or to block out the things that you don't want to hear about anymore. Um, you know, and these individuals no longer have that. Um, you know, their their worlds are forever changed. And I often hear people, you know, outside of the mass shooting survivor world talk about, well, you know, we're going to get them all back to normal. And the reality is, is that their, their normal is gone. Nowadays. Is trying to figure out how to exist in the new normal. And so I think, you know, taking the time and forcing us to confront this issue is the very least that we could do. Um, You know, I think we have to think about it like this. We've had, I've talked to a number of survivors who talk about this idea of grieving in a fishbowl. And, you know, right now we've got very intensive media attention on this community. Um, And, you know, to the point of where it's almost like we're not even talking about Buffalo anymore, which happened just 10 days before that, the shooting in Tulsa barely made a blip on the radar. Um, You know, but the media sort of swoop in and get their story. And, you know, we're all sort of sitting here watching it round the clock 24 seven, which we I don't think I think it's very easy to disengage when we're on the opposite side of the TV from the lens, because these individuals are, you know, they don't to just turn off the TV when they've had enough. And then the media go away and we all go away. And, you know, everybody sort of moves on, but they don't ever really get to. And there's so much added trauma and pressure that that causes. That's incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah. Well, it makes you appreciate the difficulty of the efforts that folks like Fred Guttenberg or David Hogg have put in, in terms of coming through either having lost a child or been a survivor within the school. And yet, Really, sort of publicly called attention repeatedly after that. How difficult that must be when you think about it within the context of everything you just said.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I know Fred. Actually, um, my stepmom and his wife used to work together. Um, home, um, you know, I just actually recently connected with David um, through Twitter um, and have spoken to a number of other people, and I've always been so in just incredibly in awe of people who endure such a public tragedy and, you know, and try to create something better for others as a result of it. Um, you know, and there's certainly survivors that are more private who don't necessarily share their story or their pain in such a vulnerable way. Um, and, and that's okay too. Everybody grieves these tragedies differently, but I think it's so, it's just so powerful to see somebody who's lost so much, wants so much better for everyone else and is willing to do the work to have that. And it makes you really start to question, you know, here's somebody who, who, who sent his 14-year-old daughter to school one day and she didn't come home. And so he doesn't have his daughter anymore, but he's fighting for your daughter or your son to come home. And so it, it almost sort of throws down the, the gauntlet, if you will. Why is he, why is Fred willing to do that but so many others aren't, you know, who, who still can can see their child
1: come home at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, a lot of the work that my team's been doing lately has been an idea of credible messengers. And I think folks like that fit the bill of credible messenger in such a compelling way. And, and obviously, I think it depends on who the audience is, who, who do folks have credibility with and, and for what purpose. But I think that the, the sort of the experience of having been involved and survived or lost someone to something like this, makes it more difficult for somebody to dismiss what you're saying as, as political for the same old sort of tropes to to derail the conversation. And so I think that, um, you know, it, it, it makes me want to think about ways for folks who like us work with data to, to join forces with those, with that lived experience to make sure that, um, you know, A, what we're doing is grounded in the lens that they see things through, but also B, that when we we have data, when we have drawn conclusions from studies, um, that their voices can help speak to those results in a way that's more compelling than mine, for instance, you know, where it's there's no reason for talking about this to be particularly compelling to someone.
2: Yeah, you know, and that's kind of one of the reasons I set out to do that research, because just, you know, I've spent a lot of time um, out in the Denver area, which the Denver area has had more share of tragedy than um, almost anybody, except for maybe Texas at this point, Um, with regards to, you know, certainly there's Columbine and then there was Aurora and more recently Boulder STEM School. I mean, the list goes on and, um, you know, and, and having sort of these more informal conversations with individuals. One thing that really dawned on me is that our policymakers and frankly, our country are telling these individuals what they need and how they should respond and react aftermath of their tragedy. And, um, you know, for me, the research really started as kind of a simple idea, which is that if you want to know what people need, just ask them. And, um, you know, and so, like I said, I've had these conversations with, you know, both, you know, formally and informally. And, you know, one of the things I constantly hear is like, just thank you for letting us have a voice or listening to us because so many people don't. And I think that's something very easy that we could do is not only listen, but amplify their message. Um, one person that I've noticed um, that I'm just so incredibly in awe of right now is Nelba Marquez Green, whose daughter, Anna Grace, was killed at Cindy. And one thing that she's really been pushing for um, after Uvalde is, you know, that anytime she does an interview, she wants to make sure that there is a um, parent of a child that was lost to everyday gun murder, not just school shootings. And, you know, because she said, you know, you guys are focusing so much on us, but you're not focusing on everybody else. And I just thought, That was just so incredibly powerful, Um, you know, and again, something very simple we can do to retweet a message like that or, you know, help to push and promote and amplify it.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that so much, you know, again, folks like us in the scientific community have done a really poor job of conveying the data to to the community more broadly in general and so i think that the understanding of the the form and scope and structure of gun violence in america is very skewed in the public in general and so so many of our conversations are about these mass shootings and and i'm not arguing we should talk about them less we should talk about them more the problem is that we talk about them too much is that we don't talk about everything else nearly enough and so it's it's powerful to me to hear somebody in in her position Raise that point. Um, And again, it, to me, it speaks to a, a failing of communication on our part to empower people with the knowledge that would create the demand that that conversation take place. If people don't realize the reality of what day to day gun violence is and how common firearm suicide is, why would they demand that the conversation be different, right? If people don't have the information in the first place, how could they possibly know to push things in that direction?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a great point.
1: Yeah. So, I I want to make sure that you know, as because I know we're we're inching closer to the hour, and I want to make sure that as we're moving the conversation forward, we're hopefully you know leading things before we get to Q and A in the direction of solutions and next best steps and stuff. And and so I'm curious, how in ways we haven't talked about already, are there ways that you feel like are national conversation sure about gun violence more broadly but also in particularly about these types of of gun violence events and the ways the conversation needs to change in order to facilitate better outcomes whether that means new policies or more research or whatever that might be
2: yeah, that's a great question. I think a challenge of our, well, I think there's sort of two challenges, if you will. Um, one is that we as a society, not every, any one particular individual, but as a society, we tend to be very reactive and not very proactive. And, you know, obviously we should absolutely support the community of and and, you know, lift them up as they mourn um, and grieve with them but also we have to look forward because um, there's somebody somewhere in America is planning the exact same thing. And so, you know, we we can't only focus on responding to yesterday. We have to work towards preventing tomorrow. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing is that we have to stop looking for the shiny object. And, you know, one of the challenges that I've kind of run into over the last Week is that uh, it, it kind of feels like, metaphorically speaking, that everybody's looking at a tree and willing it to be a forest. Uh, mass shootings are incredibly, incredibly complex phenomenon, and there's not going to be one solution. We need to take a layered approach. As I said, when, you know, kind of when we started off. There's sort of these two divergent parallel conversations, the need to prevent them and the need to mitigate the loss of life when they happen. And you know, there's not gonna be one thing that does either or both of those. It's gonna be multiple things, layer upon layer upon layer. And so the continual desire To only have one solution is really misguided. You know, let's say Congress, you know, comes back next week, and they give us, you know, every single piece of legislation that everybody's asked for, they pass universal background checks, they pass ERPOs, they pass um, assault weapons ban and, and limiting rich capacity magazines. That's not going to make it so that a mass shooting or any gun violence never happens again, because we know that there are still going to be ways that individuals can get firearms. And, and also they could frankly use other weapons. And so what is the next layer that we have to put in? And the layer in front of that and the layer in front of that.
1: Yeah, it's so difficult to sell the idea on a problem so urgent that the solutions are all imperfect, but when sort of folded together can can represent a path towards meaningful progress. And, and that's not as simple as here's the problem, here's the answer. It's here's this problem that's a horrific problem. And here are these different sort of nuanced solutions, all of which are insufficient on their own, but together can be helpful. And that's not as satisfying an answer to such an emotional event
2: yeah I think a challenge is is how do we how do we balance the emotionality with the evidence? you know, and this is certainly something I've run into and I have yet to figure out you know, sort of the magic way around this because, you know, for the better part of the last four years, I've studied lockdown drills and their effects in terms of both building muscle memory and also the effects that they have on students and staff, Um, you know, sort of psychologically um, or, you know, any sort of related outcomes, you know, and it, it it's interesting because it doesn't matter how much evidence I put in front of people like, no, look, we can do this in a really trauma informed way where we're not scarring kids for the rest of their lives, but we're just giving them tools to stay safe. And it, it's, it's literally, like people almost put their hands over their ears and say, I'm not going to listen to that because this is an emotional topic that I just want to feel the way I feel about. And so I think that's a challenge and I don't really know how to get around that, um, except to keep having open dialogue where, you know, at some point, maybe we can find a more balanced approach to having emotional conversations in evidence-based ways.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And, and I wonder if this is an opportunity sort of on that note to provide people with a little bit of practical knowledge on this, which is what might informed age-appropriate drills even look like, right? I'm not sure, you know, as a parent, I don't know that I fully know what's happening in my kids' schools, and I suspect it's different than what was happening when my kids were in Mississippi. Um, And I suspect that a lot of parents share a similar sense of, I don't know what is happening, and I don't know what should be happening. And I wonder if you have some thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. So the challenge is we don't really have any federal guidance on what drills should look like. Um, there hasn't been anything put out by the U.S. Department of Education since 2003, and if it was, or and it was very limited in what it was. It was sort of couched in this bigger how to create a you know sort of A to Z comprehensive emergency operations plan. Um, there is really great um, resources out there from groups like the National Association of School Psychologists, National Association of School and then Michelle's organization, Safe and Sound Schools, they've all worked together to produce documents um, about how drills can be conducted in a trauma-informed way. And there's some very sort of simple, simple, low-hanging fruit that you can grab in that. Um, things like, of course, making sure that we're always calling drills as drills. We don't ever want to give the impression that we're actually in a real situation. Um, and, you know, I've to date conducted more than 300 of them. And I've only had one instance where somebody forgot to say the part of the drill call that says this is a drill. And I immediately shut it down and said, no, 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 You've got to get back on that loudspeaker and tell them this is a drill. We can't have them thinking that it's real. So, you know, that's really important. Um, It's incredibly important for adults to be modeling calm behavior, which I think is really kind of a challenge. Not that adults can't model calm behavior, but there's such a disparity in experiences in the sense that, Kids today have never known a world without active shooter or lockdown drills in it, and all the adults in the room do. And so we're trying to shift one group's mindset while maintaining the other's you know, ability to be okay in that. Um, a third thing is, is that you know, we don't need the theatrics. Uh, there have been news stories of drills gone incredibly poor where teachers have been shot with pellet guns and students have been exposed to the sounds of simulated gunfire. Of their principal or another adult in the building dressing up as a shooter and yelling, I'm going to kill you. Um, there's actually video on that. Um, and then seeing crisis actors covered in fake blood. And you know, none of that is necessary to achieve the outcome of a drill, which is drills are designed to build muscle memory so that if you were to find yourself in a situation um, like Uvalde or other, you know, high stressful situation, if your cognitive functioning is impaired by stress, and your mind sort of goes blank, your body will kind of take over and do what it's trained to do. And so when we talk about drills, what we're talking about is practicing our steps to reinforce our muscle memory. And the same way that we don't light schools on fire to practice a fire drill, we don't need to create simulated active shooter situations to practice a lockdown drill.
1: Thanks, that's actually really helpful for me, from my perspective as a parent Here, you sort of describe that, um, and the thought you raised to me that I hadn't thought about, but was really salient, was that folks from our generation or, or, or older um, who who were raised in a time without these drills? To some extent, it almost feels like mourning to have to have our kids not be able to be ignorant of that. And at the same time, while that's a valid thing to feel, you kind of have to shake yourself past it and say this is their reality and help them deal with it. Um, but but I appreciate the practical, pragmatic tips on ways to do that in a way that is not traumatizing or destructive um, at all. Yeah. So thanks for that.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I will say uh, this, uh, if I can just add something to that. Um, yeah. You know, uh, just what any of you think, I don't actually really enjoy going out and putting kids on down. Um, you know, it's, it's really not the funnest thing to do. It's, you know, I try to obviously stay as upbeat as I can for them. Um, but the challenge is, is that we don't live in a world where we don't need to have these practices. And so my perspective and the way I've approached it is until we live in that world, which may never come, um, how can we do this in a way that empowers students and makes them feel prepared without making them feel scared? And that's just sort of, you know, where I think at least my research has gone
1: it makes a lot of sense and one of the things the conversations I've been having a lot with media over the last couple of weeks is, is the idea of you know I, again I I lived in Mississippi for a long time and a lot of my work is with the military and I've come to know and respect and care for a lot of firearm owners and 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 so my you know when I do my work and I talk about this I'm not coming in from a perspective of of vilifying firearm owners or saying we need to overturn the second amendment but it, w- within that context the reality is we are a society that has decided to be okay with the risk that comes with having firearms readily available. And some of that might be because you know, skewed perception of what risk is there and is not there. Um, but when we've made that decision to protect those rights and those needs, it's important to, to look at what we're doing to facilitate that and, and how that impacts other folks. And in this case, one of the ways we're facilitating that lifestyle it's by having kids have to go through that. And that's that's something we've decided is okay, society. And that, that's okay. But in doing that, it's so important to make sure we're doing it in a way that is not hurting people. Um, so that if we want no. to maintain this other aspect of our culture and our rights and our lifestyle, we're doing it in a way that doesn't come at unacceptable expense uh, to the most vulnerable among us.
2: Yeah, I don't think I could have said that any better, Mike.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, don't make me try to repeat it because I'll stumble over it. Um, <laughs> So I'll, I'll tell you what, Jackie, I know you talked about us maybe to open this up to sort of Q and A and that's a mechanic I have not done with Twitter spaces. So hopefully my, my, uh, rolling forward with this, this idea doesn't send us off the rails, but I'm wondering if there's anything you want to talk about before we do that.
2: You know, I think the only thing I would really say, um, to everybody who has joined us and, and thank you for doing that because it obviously is going to take a lot of us to help make a difference. Um, you know, It's not helpless. And like I said, there's so many cases of prevented mass shootings, of prevented suicide, of prevented domestic violence, of a lot of other things. There's so many um, different things that I, I... I want to just caution, it's not hopeless. Like We may not be making strides as fast as we would like to be or as widespread as we want to, but we are making differences and we are saving lives with the work that's being done in the gun violence prevention space. Um, And so I would just encourage, um, just don't lose hope because there is work being done and we are making steps and we are
1: going in the right direction, albeit slowly. Awesome. And the only thing I'd add, too, before we uh, switch over to Q&A is that you, I think if folks are out there listening and, and sort of feeling pretty, you know, revved up and emotional about the stories they've been hearing, but unsure how they can contribute, I would encourage you to just to, to reach out to somebody who is involved, and whether that's someone who's involved in advocacy or someone who's involved in research or someone who's involved in policy or whatever it is, but have conversations with folks to find where your space is, because I think a good way to not feel hopeless is to get involved one way or the other, and um, and so, I, yeah, I encourage folks to leverage whatever it is you're feeling, right, turn it into action without putting the pressure on you to make it sound like your action needs to be the thing that solves this huge problem for society. I think we can all contribute in a way that that fits the scale of our own personal circumstances, and, and any contribution you make is great. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I, that's what I want to get in the last second. So I don't know, Patrice, the mechanics of this, but I wonder if we want to open this up for listeners to be able to ask questions. And if I heard Jackie right, it sounds like that involves people raising their hand and then you sort of switching right. a that lets them speak. Correct. Right. So, so got there questions um, likely for the much more informed Jackie than for me. <laughs> let's hear them.
2: Looks like we might have dropped a lot of knowledge on people and they're still dead all. (laughs) Yes. Well, one thing I will say to, um, you know, to the point that Mike raised, you know, for anybody who's listening, um, you know, my email, my Twitter, uh, DMs, everything, it's always open. So, you know, I'm certainly happy to have conversations um, with anybody who's interested in making a difference. And, you know, one thing that I've tried to my work, which I know is an underlying principle of the Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium and also, um, you know, Rutgers Center um, in New Jersey with Mike is, You know, gun violence solutions don't have to be political and they don't have to be embroiled. And so, you know, we're really trying to approach this from a very nonpartisan perspective where we can just say, How can we make a difference collectively as Americans? And so, you know, I would encourage if we could have more of those types of conversations
1: and more of that thinking, I think we'd get pretty far. Yeah. I, I you saying that, Jackie. I I agree. And the two things I'd say that echo that is, one is, yeah, look, But one of the the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center's core principles is is engaging and communicating broadly. And so if folks want to reach out, um, again, my Twitter handle, the GVRC Twitter's handle, my my email, whatever. But we want to talk with folks. And and the second thing just sort of builds off of that is we're not going to solve gun violence without gun owners. And so most of the folks I interact with on this topic are folks who, like me, don't own a firearm, um, and maybe see the world through a political lens that's very similar to mine. And that's great. I, I'm love, I love talking to those folks. But a thing I want to emphasize is, again, we can't solve this without gun owners, and this is, doesn't need to be a political issue. And so I'd love to hear from, and I'm always excited to hear from folks within the gun owner community to figure out how we can work together to find solutions that match onto everybody's ideals and everyone's values so that isn't a us versus them polarized political battle, but instead a collaborative effort to say, this is the society we live in, and these are the things we value. And how, within that context, can we make sure we're keeping people safe?
0: That was Mike Anestis of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center and Jacqueline Schilkraut of the Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium housed at the Rockefeller Institute. If you'd like to learn more about gun violence and the latest in public policy research, please visit Consortium's website by visiting rockinst.org forward slash gun hyphen violence. If you liked this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share. It will help others find the podcast and help us deliver the latest in public policy research. All of our episodes are available for free wherever you stream your podcasts. Special thanks to the Rockefeller Institute staff, Joel Torado, Heather Trella, and Laura Schultz for their contributions to this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Alex Morse. Until next time. Policy Outsider is presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government, the public policy research arm of the State University of New York. The Institute conducts cutting-edge, nonpartisan public policy research and analysis to inform lasting solutions to the challenges facing New York State and the nation. Learn more at rockinst.org or by following at Rockefellerinst, that's Rockefeller-I-N-S-T, on social media. Have a question, comment, or idea? email us at communications at rock.suny.edu.